Why renter's insurance? Because burglar. State Farm Renters Insurance covers stuff for as little as 15 bucks a month, like when a burglar makes off with your new laptop. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me tonight is my co-host, Allie. How are you today, Allie? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a crazy week. I know this episode's coming out late. We've had a crazy week, weekend, all of it. And so we really appreciate your patience waiting for this episode. It shouldn't be too late. I think we'll be we'll be pretty good with it. So actually, when we were talking about our schedule, Allie and I realized that we picked three similar cases in a row. They're very different if you kind of look at the surface of them. But at the root of our Nicholas Barclay episode, our Allison Baden Clay episode, And tonight's episode, there's a single person who, it can be argued, acted in their own self-interest to the detriment of others. And tonight's topic comes from a listener who also happens to be my cousin, Tara. So thank you, Tara, for sending this along. This case has a personal connection for her because she was friends with one of the victims we're going to talk about tonight, Kirby Brown. I just want to say that being my cousin doesn't give you preferential treatment in your listener suggestions, but it also probably doesn't hurt either. (laughs) Tonight, we're going to talk about the Arizona sweat lodge deaths. And this was an incident where three people died and nearly 20 others were hospitalized following a new age self-improvement exercise. Before we start, let's get our biases out of the way. Allie, do you have a background, good or bad, with self-help books or self-help groups or programs? I know of like The Secret and Anthony Robbins, Dr. Phil to a certain extent, as far as self-help goes, but I've never had any experience with it per se. I have a hard time spending the money that a lot of these self-help groups require for their classes, so I've never done done a paid class like we're going to be talking about. I think I did borrow a book once about the law of attraction, but I never got around to reading it. Actually, I don't even know if I actually returned the book. So sorry to the library (laughs) if I still have it. But yeah, it just doesn't interest me. I have done Al-Anon, and that's a program for family members of people with alcoholism. And it really did help teach me some really practical tips. But it didn't cost me anything. It was kind of like a pass-the-hat kind of program. And, I mean, it is self-help to a degree, but it it feels so removed from what we're going to be talking about tonight. I think looking into this case did open my mind a bit to the type of people who do seek self-help programs. And we'll get into that a little bit more when we talk about the specific victims, because they didn't fit necessarily the mold I had cast for them. Let's go ahead and start with the guy at the center of this, James Arthur Ray, and he is the New Age self-help guru at the center of the story. James Arthur Ray was born in Hawaii, where his father was stationed there. He was born in November 1957. His father got out of the service, and they relocated to Iowa, then they settled in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and his father was a fire and brimstone Protestant minister. Now, his father was out there working hard and doing the good work of saving souls, but James Ray felt deprived financially in his childhood, and he couldn't really reconcile the hard work and the good works his dad was doing with the poverty 
that they were experiencing. Ray says his father was strict and domineering. His brother, on the other hand, said their mom was the strict one. She had a strict religious upbringing herself, and she really kept to the letter of the law. In the documentary that we watched on this case, it's called Enlighten Us, and it is on Netflix in the U.S. at least. Is it on Netflix for you too? Yes, in Australia as well. This was put together by CNN. It's a fantastic documentary. One story that the brother told in this documentary was that his mother didn't let them play pinball because it was a sin akin to gambling because if you played well enough, you could get a free game. And that's the same thing as gambling. It does sound like a very strict upbringing. That said, in watching this documentary and hearing him and his brother talk about their childhood, their parents seemed very supportive. And he seemed like he was being supported as he grew his career. And I'm not sure how much poverty they actually experienced. One of James's classmates said that he was always well-dressed, always looked quite presentable, not like someone who was from a poor family. Ray's portrayal of his childhood in poverty and kind of as an awkward social outcast is from his book called Harmonic Wealth. And he portrays it as this rags-to-riches story that can inspire others to overcome their humble beginnings and build their own wealth. Yeah. At least one person who knew him, like Ali said, didn't see him this way. He always dressed well. He seemed confident. Being poor is often relative to who you're around. And his parents had as much or more money than most of the families in their immediate area. And there's other parts of Ray's biography that he is accused of embellishing. Things like studying spiritualism at various places around the world. Because his biography is largely self-reported, we really don't know what is true and what isn't. Ray attended Tulsa Community College, but he didn't complete his associate degree there. He eventually found himself working at at and doing telemarketing. He just had this gift for managing and motivating people. He ended up working as a trainer at the at and School of Business. Prior to his move to Atlanta, Georgia to work as a trainer, he married at 26 but was divorced two years later. He never remarried. So here he is working at the School of Business and he taught from Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. For those who don't know, this book is a self-help book that's aimed to motivate people into action. This is less about what Ray would eventually preach, which is the power of positive thinking, and more about getting your end goal in mind and working towards that. It's more practical rather than spiritual. Back to his embellishment of his biography, though, Ray would later portray these years of teaching Covey's method into saying he actually worked with Covey. In fact, if you look at his Amazon author's biography for his book, Harmonic Wealth, it still says he worked with Covey. But the company Covey was with at the time, Franklin Covey, they say they had no record of him ever working or contracting with them. As he was teaching these principles, Ray realized that he liked this motivational speaking life and he had his own style and he wanted to make it his own and have his own philosophy. So he started a business over the years and eventually he moved out to California with it. And there were a couple businesses that kind of changed over a few times as he changed focuses a little bit. 
he he worked for about 10 years with minimal success. He did a lot of keynote addresses for business seminars and such. I'm sure if you've ever been to a conference where they have a motivational keynote speaker, you've seen this type of person there. Yes. He wasn't filling rooms of people coming to see him. These were all people who were there for the conference, and he happened to be the guy at the podium. He was building a following, but he went to a Tony Robbins seminar, and that's what he wanted. So let's bring another self-help guru on the scene, Tony Robbins. And now this one is much more like James Ray than Stephen Covey was. For those who don't know, Robbins is larger-than-life motivational speaker. He is known for his focus on wellness. He towers at six feet, seven inches. He's got this deep, booming voice. His seminars have loud music. They have the TV monitors and lights. I mean, these are shows he's putting on. Yeah. And people are cheering. They're crying. They're really connecting. And that's what Ray wanted. He wanted that to be his audience, but he wasn't finding this audience. Enter the secret on the stage and that's what changed everything for him. Ray was at a 2005 conference for motivational speakers, consultants, that kind of thing. And he was approached by an Australian television producer, Rhonda Byrne. Byrne was making a film that would later become known as The Secret, and she interviewed James for this. The Secret, for those who haven't seen it or read the book or really know much about it, it's a motivational film, and then it became a book. And it's based on the law of attraction. It's the think positive and positive things will happen to you sort of thing. What you put out there comes back. So you should visualize positive things in your life and they'll happen. I think I was in my early 20s when it came out. I must have been if it was 2006. I remember me and my friends just making fun of it, saying, let's visualize getting a parking spot in the front of the shopping center and things like that. That's the most I know about it, really. It brought this type of visualisation into the mainstream and made it accessible to pretty much everyone. And all of that caught Oprah's attention. And we all know if Oprah likes something, the whole world is going to hear about it. So Oprah invited a few of the people from The Secret onto her show, and one of them was James Arthur Ray. This was his big break. This was what was going to make him rich. Because, let's be honest about it, at this stage, he was far from it. And this wasn't something he was hiding. He was open about his financial situation from the start. He would tell people at his seminars that his goal was to be the first billionaire motivational speaker. Part of his own mission was to help people and to become rich doing it. When you see the initial appearance Ray did on Oprah... He was eloquent, good-looking, personable, and he completely won over the audience. So much so, he got invited back on Oprah. Then came the primetime interview shows and the morning talk shows. He just exploded. He started filling those halls like an Anthony Robbins. And this wasn't just a motivational talk. It was a complete performance like Anthony Robbins. It had all the lights, music, bells and whistles, everything that you could imagine, it was in his show. The style program that Ray used is known as an encounter group. And this rose really in the 1970s, and it's a confrontational style, sometimes shockingly so. It's that no excuses, tough talk that's actually still pretty popular now. I think we're still solidly in this phase of self-help. 
if you were in a seminar and discussing the boundaries in your life that were holding you back, you were pushed on it. You were questioned. You were challenged. If you became defensive, you're told to knock it off. Any excuse you gave on why you couldn't do something was just shut down. And they show some of this in the documentary as well. And it's uncomfortable. You're in a large group of people. You have a microphone and this guy's calling you out from the stage. And remember this because we're going to come back to this much closer to the end of the episode. Yes. Ray wanted to take his program further. Like we said, Robin's focused on wellness. He touched on other stuff, but largely he's known more for the holistic wellness focus. Another Oprah favorite, Deepak Chopra, is all about the spiritual. And I'll admit I've done some of his short-term daily meditation courses at home. The the free ones. Like I told you I was cheap and <laughs> so I, I didn't I haven't paid him for them. But you know, it's kinda nice to take five minutes out of your day and just kind of breathe and focus and center yourself. And there are numerous people out there who focus on your financial wealth. Ray wanted to cover all of it. He wanted to blend the spiritual side of things, like putting positivity out in the universe, and then have it land on physical wellness and getting fit physically, as well as financial prosperity. He wanted all of it. The bigger Ray got, the more intense his programs got. Let's go ahead and talk about a death that occurred at a seminar prior to what happened at the sweat lodge, and that is the death of Colleen Conaway. And this occurred 10 weeks before the sweat lodge. Now, just letting you all know right off the bat, there is a lot of details out there and not all are sourced. And in the spirit of us trying to give you all the correct details, we went for the sourced articles. So what do we know? We know that Colleen was a follower of Ray's. She would travel around the country and spend pretty much all of her money following him and attending the seminars. The participants had to turn in their IDs, their money, their cell phones, and change into tattered clothes. And then they dispersed into spending some time being homeless. And while this was happening, Ray and his quote-unquote dream team of staffers and volunteers, they had lunch at the mall. While there, Colleen, who hadn't changed into the tattered clothes, she went to the third story of the mall and fell to her death. Now, there is no evidence she was physically pushed and her death was ruled a suicide. So Ray and the rest of the seminar participants got onto the buses and left without Colleen. They did, however, alert mall security that they were missing someone. But it is alleged by some that this happened after they left without her. Other participants obviously asked about her, but Ray and his staffers said that she was fine and she just wasn't returning to the seminar. Another odd point, a staff member of Ray's tweeted about the incident about 10 minutes after it happened. But in the tweet, he made it sound like he saw it all happen, but he didn't know who it was. About 10 minutes after that, Ray tweeted that he was having lunch with his staff and volunteers. He made no mention of the horrific event his staffer had just witnessed. So from that, it seems either they didn't know it was Colleen, or they were making it look like they didn't know. What makes me wonder is that, from what I can tell, they alerted mall security to Colleen being missing at some point, but then they didn't fax her ID over until 8pm, which is six or seven hours after she fell. But wouldn't mall security have wanted that earlier if they had, in fact, been alerted earlier? There was also some oddity with the staff trying to contact Colleen on her cell phone because they were worried for her being missing and all. 
but then they knew they had her cell phone in their possession because they took it from her before she went to the mall. So when you start putting all these little pieces together, it really does sound a bit like they are trying to build an alibi. So I guess the big question is, why did she jump? I don't know. I would think it would be unlikely to be accidental because it would have had to involve her climbing onto the railing. Her family said she wasn't depressed. And there is also speculation that Ray may have pushed her too hard at that seminar, which is a recurring theme in this story. That he would often pick people he felt weren't taking it full on and embarrass them in front of the group. He would make you think you couldn't quit or back off if it was getting too hard or too much. As far as Colleen goes, though, there wasn't an investigation into what happened at the seminar. So we don't know for sure if anything happened there that led to her suicide. I think the real point of this specific story is to note Ray's complete inaction. We know he never expressed condolences to her family. He went and tweeted about his lunch, even though I'm positive his staff member would have told him about witnessing the suicide. And it's possible he tried to distance himself from the event further by pretending he didn't know her. In the end, he told participants at the seminar that Colleen was fine, even after he knew that she died. This was his chance to lead his followers through the tragedy and he balked. And this is something that we will see happen again. I think before we go much further, we have to kind of understand the way Ray's program was set up. So this path to transformation or whatever it was he was trying to do had tiers. Now, a person moved from tier to tier by going to different seminars and retreats. So you start at Harmonic Wealth and you take that a few times and then you move on to the next one. And of course, it got more expensive and more time intensive as you moved up. You're going from an afternoon, evening seminar to a weekend to a week, that kind of thing. Of course, the price tag got higher and higher and higher. And disproportionately so. Exactly. And Ray's entire enterprise was expensive. I mean, he had the lighting, he had the TVs, he had staff, he had to get these venues, he had to pay for all of this. He claims his overhead for a single year was about $6 million. So he didn't make any money until he cleared the $6 million mark. And in 2008, there was a global worldwide recession. Seminars on improving your life was not really where people were putting their money I mean, their retirement accounts had tanked. People were paying mortgages on houses that had depreciated so far that they owed more than the house was even worth. Exactly. People were struggling to pay the mortgage, not put their money towards these self-help programs. Right. This idea of positive thinking sounds great, but when you really don't have the money for it, you don't have the money for it. And unemployment was on the rise. Exactly. Even people who were financially secure felt insecure. Because, I mean, we didn't know how far or how long the recession would last. There was a lot of talk of this becoming another Great Depression. So even people with money stopped spending it on these luxuries. And a $300 self-help class is a luxury. With this, Ray decided to start letting people skip tiers. So instead of making them slowly graduate from each seminar... He was going to let them jump from the bottom to the top, and the top was spiritual warrior level. This involved a grueling five-day retreat, teaching that challenges lead to growth. Each tier had increasing challenges. 
So the first tiers would be those encounter sessions. Well, then it would move up into ropes courses and trust falls. Then it would build up to sticking your hand in a tank of snakes and a build up to the fire running over the hot coals. Have you ever done that, Allie? No. No, I, no, I, I, I couldn't do that. So Spiritual Warrior being the toughest had the toughest challenges. I mean, we're talking tougher than running across a bed of hot coals. He warned people in his seminar that they can't, not everyone can go from basic harmonic wealth to spiritual warrior. They had to be ready for it. But he also let them decide if they were ready for it. It's not like he had a screening process. But there was another thing they had to have. They had to have nearly $10,000 to pay for this five-day retreat. Actually, it was only 9695 so nearly $10,000 reach. <laughs> exactly. So for this nearly $10,000, the participants went to a retreat called Angel Valley near Sedona, Arizona. Angel Valley is not owned by Ray. They host their own events, but they also rent the space out to groups like Ray and his spiritual warriors. Each day had different activities meant to challenge the participants. They were encouraged not to sleep very much. Angel Valley serves balanced vegetarian meals, but Ray would have people fast for extended periods. Now you're probably going, okay, lack of sleep, lack of food, lack of protein. We're talking typical cult tactics to break you down. What's kind of odd about this is Ray admits that is what he was doing. He wanted to break people down physically and mentally so that they were less resistant to the message. They could drop their rational defenses. They would drop their excuses. They weren't able to intellectualize their way out of facing whatever they're there to face, whatever their issues are. And this wasn't just fasting for a few hours. I read that they fasted for 36 hours before going into the sweat lodge. One of the things they did is shave their heads to show that they were letting go of their vanity and their boundaries. And like Ali said, before this final event at the Sweat Lodge, they spent 36 hours fasting and meditating and hiking in the wilderness. This was a complete fast, which meant no water either. And they finished this session the morning of the day they went into the Sweat Lodge. They were able to break their fast before they went into the Sweat Lodge. So that morning, some of them ate oatmeal, fruit. I think one person ate eggs. And they were encouraged to hydrate all morning and afternoon, but they were not fed lunch. And Ray told them that it's because vomiting in the sweat lodge was normal and it was better if they didn't have a lot of food in their stomachs. By the time they entered the sweat lodge, it would have been 48 hours with one meal and several hours of hydrating after a long period of not hydrating. And if anyone's ever been dehydrated and needed fluids, it's not so easy as just guzzling water. No. That's, that's not how our bodies work. Before we get any further into this part of the story, let's talk about what a sweat lodge actually is. Now, a traditional sweat lodge is a dome-shaped structure made of a wood frame and covered with animal skins. Stones are heated and placed into the lodge and water is then poured over them. So you essentially have a sauna. A sweat lodge is an American Indian religious tradition, particularly with the Plains Indians, and they use it in ceremonies of prayer and healing. 
And just a side note here, the use of the sweat lodge by new age groups for their own purpose is offensive to Native Americans. Not only do they recognise it's dangerous if done recklessly, which we will learn, it's taking something they hold sacred and removing it from that context. Now, traditional sweat lodges are made from natural materials. We are talking wood, mud and animal skins. The new age bastardization of this practice involves creating these domes with plastic outers, which is a lot more porous and makes for a stronger seal of the heat and the steam. It's basically like putting your head inside of a plastic bag. And the sweat lodge at Angel Valley, which was built at Ray's insistence, it was even more stifling than many of them because he had complained in the first few years of the retreat that it wasn't getting hot enough inside the lodge. Obviously, taking a process and altering it with different materials will lead to different results. And in the several years leading up to this incident, four people in the U.S. had died in New Age sweat lodges. Now, we can say Ray didn't know about these and was ignorant to this, but he did know about previous incidents at his own retreats. In 2005, the Angel Valley owner had to call 911 when Ray would not because a man in a sweat lodge became irrational and violent. Not only would Ray not call 911, he tried to argue with the person who did. The man was admitted to the hospital with heat stroke. The couple Ray hired to facilitate the sweat lodge later testified to additional incidents, so Ray knew there had been issues in the past. He witnessed issues in the past, and he knew there could be medical emergencies in this practice, but let's point out he never had medical personnel nearby. You may be wondering what I was wondering, and why in the world did Angel Valley let him come back after they had to call 911 for the 2005 incident? Apparently, he apologized to them, said he had learned his lesson, and wouldn't have another issue. You see, while Ray is telling his followers that dizziness, nausea, even vomiting in the sweat lodge is normal, Angel Valley knows it's not. The sweat lodge is not supposed to be that hot. It should make you sweat. It should feel like a sauna. When you come out, you'll be tired. Yeah, but you're not supposed to be delirious. You're not supposed to be violent. You shouldn't be passing out. And he kept this promise, but not forever. The next year was fine, but he just kept pushing it. And even knowing from these previous retreats that the sweat lodge can cause heat stroke and delusions and all of that, on October 8th, 2009, Ray sent over 50 people into the sweat lodge for what was going to be a seven or eight round session. I read the Web Sleuth thread on this case and there was a Native American woman on there that has experienced a lot of Native American sweat lodges. And so if you go and read that, she lets you know exactly what generally happens in a sweat lodge. It's nothing like what we see here. And Angel Valley had to build the sweat lodge large enough because they normally don't have this many people in it either. That's something that this lady does mention in the thread that The sweat lodges are never this big. People entered the sweat lodge in their bathing suits to have as little clothing on as possible. The first group went in and sat along the perimeter of the lodge. It was described in the documentary that they sat shoulder to shoulder. Then the second group came in and they sat in front of the first group. And they are all touching each other and kind of using the people behind them almost as backrests. After everyone was in, hot stones were brought in and the flap was closed. 
the air got hot, of course, and then when water was poured on the stones, it caused steam. In a police statement, either the owner of Angel Valley or one of the employees said that the sweat lodge usually went for four rounds of 15 minutes each. But the actuality of this one was it went for seven or eight rounds. At the end of each round, the flap was open and more rocks were brought in. People were told they were free to leave at any time, and some actually did leave earlier on. Others reported having gotten to the door to leave only to find Ray there telling them that they can do this, that they needed to play full on and push through it. I also read that he led the rest of the group in a chant of something like, you can do this. So kind of a peer pressure situation, so they stayed. He later says he was just being a mentor or a coach, but I think it could be argued he was pressuring them into ignoring what their bodies were telling them, which was that they were in danger. Multiple sweat lodge participants told the police that they had lost consciousness inside the sweat lodge and woke up having been dragged or carried out. One woman, who was sitting near the flap, said that at first when the flap was open between rounds, it did help cool things off a bit, but eventually it just got so hot in the sweat lodge, you couldn't tell the difference when the flap was open or closed. Another participant who had done the sweat lodge before said this time around it was hotter than the previous experiences. There was also some allegations during the sweat lodge that Ray told participants that he would deal with an unconscious person in the next round. So just literally leaving them there passed out for what could have been up to 15 minutes. And I'm sorry, but the fact that he told participants that he would deal with an unconscious person in the next round is outrageous and shows he has no compassion or caring for human life. I think we'll see that illustrated even more as we keep telling the story because it, it gets worse from here. I don't know. If he just maybe stopped it then when people were actually passing out, it mightn't have got to this point that it got. There are the people who left between sessions, and there were the ones who talk, were talked out of it by Ray, and he tried to coax some back in after they had left, but they stayed out. One man, in trying to get out, fell onto the rocks and he was burned. An Angel Valley employee named Fawn said the flap was opened at the end of the session and he came out burned. So she's not sure if it happened right before the flap was open or if the burn happened before and they made him wait to until the end of the session to get out. We're talking about people who are getting delirious here. So standing up and trying to run out over hot stones, that really could have happened. I imagine if you were dehydrated, you when you stood up, you would be a bit dizzy and disorientated. And it was extremely dark in there, even when the flap opened was the only light they would have seen. Yeah. Now, when he came out, one of Ray's quote-unquote dream team members, which is what he called those close staff and volunteers, claimed to be a nurse and wrapped the man's arm in a towel. Fawn wasn't a nurse, but she knew that wrapping a burn like that was not even basic first aid. And she told the woman to take the towel off, and she rendered first aid herself, even though it wasn't her job. She told police she doesn't believe the woman claiming to be a nurse was a nurse. And I can't imagine a Boy Scout or a Girl Scout of 11 years old wrapping someone's burn in a towel. I guess that's something that's important to point out, that Ray had no doctors or nurses on staff. He did have participants who were doctors or nurses but no paid employees that were there to specifically do 
to care for people that were injured or in distress. To render aid. Exactly. In any way. There was a nurse there who was the Angel Valley employed, but she was not at the sweat lodge and not aware of that. That wasn't her job. She wasn't told to be there. Prior to the end of the sweat lodge, like Allie was saying, people were starting to voice concerns about other participants. James Shore was next to Kirby Brown, and he realized she wasn't breathing. He told Ray that Kirby had stopped breathing and Ray's response reported by multiple witnesses. This isn't just one person saying it. Multiple people heard him say, leave her there to the end of the round. That whole no one leaves during a round apparently includes if you're actually dying, you do not get to leave, which is absolutely ridiculous. This is absolutely going too far. And how scary would that have been for uh, the person dying basically on the ground and for the people around her unable to help? It would have been terrifying. Another participant was concerned for Liz Newman. Her breathing became rattled and she seemed completely out of it, but she was still conscious. When Ray was alerted to this, he said Liz knew what she was doing. She'd done the sweat lodge before. The person with Liz asked her if she wanted to leave and Liz shook her head no. I think at this point we know she was not in her own right mind. And you really don't let people make their own medical decisions when they're not in their right mind. Now, I really do feel for the person who was in that position. Yeah. Because that's not an enviable position for her. She has Liz saying, no, I don't want to leave. She has James saying, she's fine. She doesn't have to leave. What was she supposed to do? So I really, I don't blame her. This wasn't her job to protect Liz. And she tr- she did what she thought she could do. And to a certain point, she trusts Ray's judgment. They had been told to trust his judgment. He's done these before. Exactly. This is fine. I mean, we get on roller coasters and tell ourselves, okay, these are engineered, they're maintained, they're safe, or else nobody would get on them. They're trusting him in that way. They're trusting him the way we trust roller coasters. The session ended in the seventh round. The flap opened, and according to witnesses, Ray walked out with his arms raised and said, hose me off. One of his employees tells him that there are still three people inside the sweat lodge and asked if she could open the back of the lodge. Ray tells her it would be sacrilegious, but if she had to, she could. A witness reports that this employee didn't actually wait for permission. She was already back there pulling it down. More of the sweat lodge would be later pulled down to wrap the people who were going into shock. And while Ray was being hosed down in triumph, you have other people crawling out, passing out, shaking and vomiting. But the fact that Ray could walk out of the sweat lodge without any of these symptoms, it was less of a testament of his strength and more of a testament to the benefit of standing next to the flap. Remember, Ray was right there at the flap, so every time it opened, he cooled down between each round. But then if I'm ever going to come to his defence, it's now because it would mean that he would be likely unaware of how hot it was for everyone else who did not have the same benefit as he did with positioning. However, that does not excuse his actions to come. Most of the participants were delirious, and Memni don't even have clear memories of the events. They remember going into the sweat lodge, and some remember waking up outside the sweat lodge without any memory of getting out. 
So the witness statements to the police from the people who were working and not actually in the sweat lodge, they give us the clearest picture of what happened. Debbie Mercer was an employee of Ray's, and she told him she needed a cell phone to call 911. And she testified that Ray shrugged. And he would later act as though he was shocked when he got the news that people were seriously sick and dead. But according to witnesses, he was aware the entire time. He would have had to be. I mean, people are all over the ground. How did he not know there was something going on? He knew three people were inside unconscious, so he cannot say he did not know. Debbie had to go find a phone to call 911. And when she came back to the scene, guess what she saw? She saw Ray on his cell phone. And call records show that call was not to 911. So he had a phone. He could have called 911, and he didn't. Witnesses also reported that they did not see Ray render aid to anyone. He stayed on the scene for about 15 minutes, and he talked to a few people, but he he didn't actually help anyone who was injured. When the ambulance was in sight and they heard the sirens, he said that anyone who could walk needed to go back to their rooms, and nobody has any report of seeing him after that. Most people are not sure when he left exactly, because like most human beings, they were busy helping the people who needed help. Yeah. And were not paying attention to where he was, but he was gone by the time the ambulance got there. Now, like I said, Angel Valley did have a nurse. She was not on standby at the sweat lodge. By the time they found her and got her to the scene, CPR was already in progress by other members there. In an attempt to defend his own actions a bit, James Ray said he himself was out of it due to the grueling week and the two-hour sweat lodge event, and he likens it to running a marathon. Poor thing. So he was surprised, supposedly, when the police knocked on his door and told and told him they were investigating this as a homicide. Let's pause and talk about the... We're going to talk about the investigation and the fallout. And first, let's talk about the victims who lost their lives in this event. These are not the only victims of the event. Upwards of 20 people were had to be transported to the hospital. And many others, they lost a lot psychologically in this process. And I don't want to downplay that, but we are going to talk specifically about the the victims who died. In the aftermath of the sweat lodge, the participants of this program in the media were portrayed as desperate and needy. I mean, why else would they fall into this guy's charm and his promises and spend all this money being there and listening to him and doing whatever he says? And I get this because this is what I realized as I researched, I also believed about these people without even reading their stories, because who else would fall into this guy's trap? But then I read their stories, and I realized they don't fit in that box. And it's unfair to put all of these people into one box. Yes, self-help groups attract plenty of people who are needy, people who are in crisis, people who are at the end of the rope. But just as many of these people are successful enough that they could afford raise seminars and retreats to begin with, And they were generally happy in their lives. They just wanted to reach for something more. It wasn't that they didn't have enough. 
They just wanted more. And there's nothing wrong with having ambitions beyond what is right in front of you. And the case of Kirby Brown really illustrates this. She just kind of wanted to jumpstart her life. She was 37 years old. She had two engagements that had not led to marriage. She had a business that was growing, but not, it was kind of starting to plateau and it wasn't growing as quickly as she wanted. She was active. She was a horseback rider, a surfer, an artist. She had lots of friends who she was close to. She was close to her family. She had very deep relationships with them. But she was on this plateau and she wanted to work on herself so she could find her way to marriage, to booming business, to whatever's next for her. She saw Ray on Oprah, like a lot of people, and she went to a free seminar. And then she did two of his harmonic wealth sessions, and that's his lowest tier. And she was at the session where he opened his spiritual warriors retreat up to everybody. She spent all the money she had saved up in her life on this retreat. She was really just ready to open herself up to what was next. And when emergency services arrived, a bystander was performing CPR on her. She was airlifted out, but she died prior to arriving at the hospital. Liz Newman was like Kirby in a lot of ways. She was single and athletic, and her friends would describe her as having a dynamic personality. When all of this happened, Liz was 47 with three grown children, and she was working in computer database management. And as you said, Charlie, Liz wasn't looking at Ray to save her. She just wanted to reach the next great thing the universe had in store for her and live life to the fullest. And again, unlike most of the other participants that day, she had experienced Ray's programs before and she had done the Spiritual Warrior Retreat in the past. This wasn't even her first sweat lodge. And she was part of the volunteer group that worked with Ray. After Liz was rushed to the hospital from the sweat lodge, she spent nine days in a coma before dying of multiple organ failure. James Shore was a 40-year-old dad of three minor children. I think his final act can speak for his biography and, and who he was as a person and his character better than any rattling off of life facts can. Witnesses report seeing James carry one woman out of the sweat lodge before he went back in for Kirby. He collapsed beside her, inside of the sweat lodge, and when he was found, he was holding her hand. It was, it was very likely an attempt to comfort her. The woman he carried to safety survived. James, like Kirby, received CPR from a bystander, and also like Kirby, he died before arriving at the hospital. The causes of death for Kirby and James was heat stroke, which is a type of hyperthermia. And the cause of death for Liz was multiple organ failure due to hyperthermia. During the trial, the defense tried to suggest that perhaps there was a toxin, like an insecticide involved. But the medical examiner shut that down pretty quickly since no one showed signs of lethal insecticide levels at all. And you would think if that was the case, it would have affected more than three people. And it would have affected James Ray. Exactly. When the police arrived on the scene, their initial thought was that this was a cult situation and possibly an attempted mass suicide, which I find completely understandable. There were people vomiting, shaking and unconscious. 
And this is what you would expect if a lot of people purposely poisoned themselves or accidentally overdosed on drugs. Officers interviewed witnesses at the retreat and those who were transported to hospital. But it soon became clear that it was actually the sweat lodge that was the issue. And when the officers got to interview Ray's dream team, they told him he needed to stop talking to participants and talk to Jason, who was Ray's personal assistant. Eventually, the questioning came around to where Ray was, and Jason said he was eating dinner. The officer's report notes, and I have to agree, that he found it odd Ray was eating dinner while EMS was still on the scene and while people were being still transported to hospital. Officers were sent around Angel Valley to check on the participants because it came out that Ray told some of them to leave. Some were found in distress and then transported to hospital. Now, Ray did speak to an officer that night, as you said earlier, Charlie. He didn't say much, and while waiting for investigators to get there, which I presume was to take a full statement, he must have talked to an attorney first because he told the investigators his lawyer told him not to say anything else. And then he left the retreat entirely. He said his criminal attorney told him to get out of there. But for those who were there sick and having to watch their friends die, his absence spoke volumes. On the day of Kirby Brown's funeral and the day Liz died, Ray held a seminar for his World Wealth Society followers. And these were a group of people who paid for special and a more personal access to Ray. It cost around $90,000 a year to join. When he was informed on stage that Liz had died, it was reported by one attendee that Ray showed no emotion, which I completely did not understand. Liz was a volunteer for him. He would have known her. I think he had enough money he could have flown to Kirby's funeral or he could have visited Liz in the hospital. There are things he could have done. Just like what James Shore did in his last moments, I think what James Arthur Ray did on this day and after really shows his character. On February 3rd, 2010, James Arthur Ray was arrested and charged with three counts of manslaughter. His attorney said that this was a tragic accident, Ray was not responsible, and he feels the media attention and outcry was the real reason the charges were brought. During the trial, witnesses explained how hot the sweat lodge got and about Ray's inaction when it was clear people were in distress. The trial lasted four months and there were three possible outcomes. Manslaughter, negligent homicide, or not guilty. Now in Arizona, there's not a difference between voluntary and involuntary manslaughter. There's just manslaughter. Now the difference between manslaughter and negligent homicide is intention. So did James Arthur Ray knowingly take a risk that endangered people's lives, therefore acting recklessly and being guilty of manslaughter, or was he simply negligent? He took a risk he should have been aware of, but he wasn't, and he endangered people's lives. Or was he not guilty? Were these just consenting adults who knowingly and willingly took on this risk themselves? The jury decided that he was not guilty on manslaughter, but he was guilty of negligent homicide. It came down to his actions, or rather his inactions, after he was told people were in distress. That's what really convicted him. Whereas I see not having medical personnel on hand would have made him negligent and doing seven to eight rounds of this, the sweat lodge would make him negligent. 
it really came down to the fact that he didn't act when he was told people were in distress. Before sentencing, Ray told the judge he truly didn't know that people were in distress. He would have stopped if he knew. But it was clear from the previous testimony from more than one person that Ray did know, and he chose to continue the sweat lodge with unconscious people in front of him who had to be carried out after. He didn't stay and render aid. He didn't call 911. The judge sentenced him to two years per count, which is three counts for each death, but they were to run concurrently. So he would basically have two years total. He served about 18 to 20 months in jail before he was released, and he was facing nine years. That would have been the maximum sentence, and the families of the victims were very displeased with his light sentence. I just think it's ridiculous for two years in prison, not even that in the end, for watching, just, just standing by and watching, not even standing by, walking away and letting three people die. It's, it's, I have no words. I definitely agree that he should have been found guilty. I feel like it was manslaughter when he didn't run, when he did not get help, when he was told people were in distress. I think he knew at that point, continuing the sweat lodge was taking a risk and he was acting recklessly. I understand why the jury gave him a lesser a lesser charge. Sometimes, I don't know, we kind of call them compromise verdicts where they get pick the middle one. Well, we know he's guilty, but we don't want to give him the highest one, so we give him the middle one. Having him serve it concurrently, I don't understand. There is some audio evidence that I think is why the jury did lean away from manslaughter. While he did coax and pressure people to stay, there is audio of him saying ahead of time, if you have to leave, you leave. But once he didn't let anyone take Kirby out the moment he was alerted to her not breathing, meaning she wouldn't have been able to leave if she needed to leave, she was no longer breathing, it really became negligent. Yeah. And I personally think it rose to the level of reckless, but obviously the jury disagrees. And not to mention that he knew about previous issues in the sweat lodge. And I think I agree, his sentence is too light. I think the two years per victim is fine, but I think it should have been consecutive. Exactly. Less than two years for what he did and what he chose to do. I, I think that's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, he called the three people who died, he called them his friends. Friends he just left to die in the dirt. And then he runs away before the police arrive, before the ambulance arrives, and he gives no attempt to help. I, I just don't understand that. Ray has been released from prison and he decided to write a memoir. Of course. He pitched it to a few places and everyone loves a good fall from grace story. So he did get interest, but it ended on a low note. There was no comeback. He was just kind of an ordinary guy. So that comeback is what Ray has been working on. He's trying to rebuild his career. It took him 10 years to build it to begin with, and now he's trying to rebuild it, starting with this cloud over his head of the fact that he killed people. He sees people one-on-one. -on -one. He holds small seminars in people's living rooms and small theaters. There's no lights, no rock music, no retreats. He doesn't have this inner circle that'll pay him 90k a year just to be his friend. He's starting back at the bottom. And in watching clips of these seminars he talks about the sweat lodge and he talks about his time in prison but i feel like he's twisting it he maintains that this was an accident and he keeps using the word accident and he maintains it was a challenge for him to overcome 
I know you watch these same clips from these different seminars. What do you think about them and about how Ray is portraying his challenges? I found the fact that he was even able to attempt a comeback disgusting. He's exploiting these deaths for an extra bang on his comeback seminars. There are two points in these clips that I realized 100% that he has not and is not accepting what he did wrong and that he's not practicing what he preaches. So in one seminar, a woman used some of his own encounter techniques on him. It was really interesting. She confronted him about the deaths and he tried to dodge. He deflected. He answered her question with a question. I mean, he did all of the things he would have called someone out on doing. And maybe he got back to it later in the session because this was just a clip from it. But what I saw, if he was running that session and someone did that to him, he would have stopped everything and called him out on it. Exactly. He wasn't breaking down boundaries or dealing with issues. He was avoiding it. Yet he's trying to get other people to do it. And the second thing is there's another clip from another seminar. And he kept saying, I am responsible. But then he went on to speak in the passive voice about the sweat lodge. Things were missed. Things were overlooked. I hired people to do things that they didn't do. Like, if he was taking responsibility, he wouldn't say things were overlooked. He would say, I overlooked things. I missed things. Apparently, I've been reading too much of the self-help stuff in preparation for this episode because I'm watching him do all the things these books and articles tell you not to do. He's purposely distancing himself from what happened. So if I was a self-help guru like Ray, I would stop him and I would make him rephrase it and say, I am responsible. I missed things. And then he went on honestly to just present his defense case. He said, I am responsible. And then he says a whole bunch of words that dismiss those words. And that's what made me feel sick. Ray says ad nauseum, both in the documentary and in real life, that he feels sorry for killing these three people. But these apologies are never said in the context of offering sympathy for the victim's families or regret for taking his routine too far. Instead, Ray's apologies are in the context of his ruined career and losing his dream home and complaining about an overzealous criminal justice system. It's never genuine apologies. And I take his come back to just be more of what he's always done because he says well I help people it's what I do but he's still only helping people for a fee he's still selling his help why can't his comeback story be him volunteering as a peer counselor for men who are at rock bottom why isn't he giving these seminars in domestic violence shelters helping people who really do need someone to help them out, but can't pay him. His comeback story is about him trying to get money again. Yeah, It's not about helping people. I don't buy any of what he says. I really think he's the worst of what the self-help industry has to offer. I completely agree. Okay, so now that we're done, um, I'm done ranting a bit. We should go ahead and wrap up. We'll go ahead and start with... Some Patreon shout-outs. Um, Shout-out to Nema, to Carla, and to Maggie S. Thank you so much for your Patreon support. 
If anyone would like to support us on Patreon, we do a monthly bonus episode. They're usually 20 to 30 minutes long. You can find that at patreon.com slash insightpod. And also a big thank you. We have gotten so many five-star reviews. We're doing a social media giveaway. Be sure to follow us on social media, especially Facebook. That's where we do all our extra stuff. And I just want to thank some people who left some reviews. Izzy iTunes, Liv Mac, Bumpy Joe, Keith Lynette, In Hampton Roads, and Maureen Karen. Thank you so much for your five-star reviews. Thank you everyone who's been leaving them. It's it's really nice to hear the feedback of what you think we're doing well, so we know to keep doing it. We're not going to pivot away from that because we know what's working. And so we really appreciate the feedback. You can find us on Facebook. We're Insight Pod. We also have a Facebook group. Twitter's at Insightful Pod. I'm the one who usually mans it. Occasionally you might hear from Allie, but usually it's me. Instagram is at Insight Pod, and that's all Allie because I don't really know how to use it. And we have a website, insightpod.com. We have articles, and Allie has been turning all of our articles into audio articles. So they're almost like really many bonus episodes. Thank you for your patience with us getting this episode out a little late. And we will see you next week, planning on being on time next week. Oftentimes in tragedies like this, out of the grief, the families and the, the victims create something new, something, something good. And Kirby Brown's family began a nonprofit called Seek Safely. The self-help industry is an $11 billion a year industry, and it is largely unregulated. Unlike social workers, therapists, psychologists, psychiatrists, self-help is not regulated. Seek Safely is trying to encourage self-help programs to opt in to a set of standards that would help prevent tragedies like what happened to Kirby and to Liz and to James. They also have information for consumers. You can find them at seeksafely.org.